adversaries into allies. Win people over without manipulation or coercion. On this episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion, we'll speak with Bob Berg, the author of Adversaries to Allies. I believe that you will find that this is a, a, a topic that many of us uh, would love to explore. And so uh, without further delay or uh, pomp and circumstance, let's get right into this interview with Bob Berg, the author of Adversaries into Allies. I contacted you was because we're experiencing, and probably more like most of the country, experiencing uh, conflict in some pretty extreme ways. And so folks are looking for ways to, uh, to deal with that conflict, mitigate that conflict, navigate through that conflict. Um, and, and it's uh, not just political, but it's uh, conflicts of ideas, conflict of methods, and all these things. And so uh, in doing my research, I ran across one of your books, and uh, I thought it was absolutely profound. And it's oh, the book, uh, Adversaries to Allies, mm-hmm. When People Without Manipulation or Coercion. And when I, uh, I saw that, I was like, yes, yes, yes. So here's somebody with some answers to to oh, some, thank some you. real problems. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into get into the book. Okay, and we actually now have that book. It, it came out in paperback. I'm gonna show it to you. I didn't know which edition you had. Uh, so it's now a paperback book, yay. Oh but uh, that came out a couple of years ago or so in paperback. Average Servers into Allies is actually of all the books I've written or co-written, that's, kind of the book that I, I sort of felt I was put on earth to write. And so I'm, I'm so deeply honored <laughs> to know that you enjoyed it, that you thought it was a, a good book and worthwhile of, you know, utilizing. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about you, Bob. I mean, so, so what brought you to, and, and you're not just the author of this book. Like, as you mentioned, you've co-authored a number of books as well. And yeah. And, and so tell me about your, your, your niche, your, your vein. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I started out as a, um, as a broadcaster. Uh, first, I was in radio and then television in a very, very small market. I was with an ABC affiliate, small market, and, which was good because I got to learn. You know, you didn't get paid a whole lot, but you learned everything about the, uh, you know, the field, which helped me as a, a guest <laughs> after I had books out. But I, I really kind of graduated into sales, right, and uh, started studying sales and personal development and, and did well in sales and Uh, eventually started teaching other people what was working for me. So my first big book was called Endless Referrals, which was basically a book on business networking. Uh, But the the series that really started it for me that kind of took it to a new level was um, a book called The Go-Giver, which is a business parable that I co-authored with John David Mann. Since we've now had, uh, we now have four books on the series, three of them are parables. And that's been, you know, that that one has sold, uh, I think, $850,000, for the 850,000 copies approaching 900,000 and altogether the books have sold well over a million. So that's been our biggest one. And the last one, the go-giver influencer is really the parable of that book that you have there. It's the parable of, of the uh, adversaries and the allies, which is the how to aspect. So okay. yeah, really my, my big, 
you know, my big thing is trying to bring to the world a, a way of communicating with one another that we can actually communicate and actually be effective and be influential and be persuasive and always, you know, be able to, to deal with or work with others in a way in which everyone comes out ahead, but also everyone feels good about themselves and they feel good about the situation and they feel good about the other person because what's happening now is really, you know, just the opposite of that where, where it, you know, it used to be, I'm right, you're wrong. Now it's, I'm right, you're evil. And, uh, you know, as, as <coughs> counterproductive as it used to be, now it's gotten downright just nasty and mean and, and totally, you know, counter, counterproductive. So, so you do give some solutions to that in the book, and, and I appreciate that. But, but what do you think has driven us to this point where, um, where differences are not a point of, uh, they're a point of contention, but not a point of collaboration, right? So um, I can remember in my younger days, if I had disagreed with someone, that was actually a person that I wanted to get to know more of, about, right? So now we seem to be in this with, with that's the opposite. I, I only want to be surrounded by things or with people who agree with how I see the world. And, and that. What, what do you think has led us to this, this particular point? Yeah, and that is a great, a great point that you made. Uh, what has led us? Well, I think what has facilitated that happening is social media and the internet. And I'm not blaming it on that, okay? But I'm just saying that's helped this along. Why? Because now everyone has access to, to share their opinions, okay? And so the good news is, you know, everyone can share their opinions. The bad news is everyone is sharing their opinions. And <laughs> their opinions, they're not necessarily facts. But what, you know, but what happens is uh, when you... Uh, when you believe something, because we all come from our own individual belief systems, our ways of, of seeing the world. And it's now easier to kind of join groups or kind of see where this entire group of people kind of comes at it the way you do. And it's easy now to find an echo chamber, <laughs> right? Uh, to be a part of, to what have you. And so I think it's taken it. So now the numbers have just gotten so big. It used to be, you know, you, you had an opinion, had thoughts, but you, other people had different thoughts and, and so forth. Well, that's still the same, but now it's easier to kind of put those other thoughts out and just go to the ones that make you feel good. Yeah. It's the same with, you know, remember there used to be, you know, basically three networks, right? And then uh, and then the, the public channel. And the, so you, you basically got your news from one of four different places. They all kind of had to, to, to present it as objectively as they could. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, you've got so many different outlets and they're all competing for the same advertising dollars. They need to draw eyeballs. Okay. Now, here's a headline that does not draw eyeballs. Corporate CEO treats people well. And <laughs> okay. You're right. Right. So, so instead, they, they, they are now more, you know, uh, what, what's the word you call where it's... Um, sensationalized. Sensational. That, that was the word. Sensationalized. Everything now is sensational, right? It, everything is a... Uh, and it's, you know, so 
that's what we've got. So now it's easier to find that, uh, you know, if you're this, well, here are the networks to watch that echo your views and you can feel really good and, and see the news as you want to see it, right? But right. if you feel this way, you can watch this network and see it as you want to see it. And now, and, and as that's happened, I think there's been a cause and effect and a cause and effect and it's gone circular. So it's now just kept building this, you know, I'm on my team, you're on your team, my team's made up of good people with good intent, your team is made up of bad people with bad intent. It's not just that I disagree with your idea, I disagree with you as a person. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're a bad person for even having those ideas, and the people whose opinions I respect, they say that, so I know it's true. <laughs> so I think all this together, so you look at social media, you look at the, 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 the traditional media, and I think it all, um, you know, it, it all has created the context for that to happen. It's still not their, the, the fault of that, human beings and human nature being what it is. Hey, you know, we need to take responsibility for ourselves to communicate the correct way. But I, but I, think, the, uh, I think the modern day technology has created the context where that negativity can really go to a, a different level. Yeah, I, I remember growing up at a time when Walter Cronkite, and I'm dating myself, but he was the news. Like, if he said it, that's how it was. And then, you know, you could debate how you felt about it, but he told the truth, right? So, yeah. uh, so well, I think to your point, yeah. And here's an interesting thing about that, because you bring up a, a very great point. Walter Cronkite, you really didn't know if he was left or right. It came out after he died, or maybe at near the end of his life. He was actually very far to the left politically. But it's such a, a tribute to him that none of us even knew that. Mm -mm. We just knew if Walter Cronkite said it, it was objective. You know, it, that he said it because it's the news. He was reporting the news. He wasn't being the news. And he wasn't trying to frame the news. Yep. You didn't know what he was. Yeah, no, you didn't. I'm, yeah, nowadays, can you really say that about, you know, most of the, uh, you know, the reporters or the anchors? Yeah, you can't say, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I like how, so when I was reading the book, I liked how you gave some very pointed ways to kind of get out of these echo chambers, right? So, um, and, and actually be critical about oneself, but also be compassionate to the other point of view, right? Which right. Uh, you so eloquently kind of pointed out how we've gotten to that point. So, uh, um, and I, I have to pick up your other books because I didn't recognize that this was kind of the how-to manual <laughs> to those other things. Um, but I'm kind of a pragmatist, so I want to get like straight to just tell me what to do so I right, can right. the problem. So uh, I found this to be very helpful. Thank so, you. So, um, you know, I, I wrote down some notes and just had some, uh, some questions to sure. kind of, uh, ask you about so there are basically five principles that you that you present in the book mm -hmm. one is controlling your emotions uh, understanding the clash of belief systems right. uh, acknowledging the other's ego um, setting the proper frame and communicating with with tact and empathy so so what led you to come up with those five things if you can talk a little bit about those five principles that'll be wonderful well, I, you know, I truly believe, in, and please pardon me for bragging here, but, you know, I had and still have great parents who I got to see just treat people well. 
and treat people with kindness. And my dad, who, you know, he and I are so much alike in which we both, he was very much in the public eye in his, you know, in the um, Massachusetts area where we grew up through his work. And I, just as an author and speaker, I tend to be in the public eye. So we both, so I got to kind of see how my dad just treated people and how loved he was and how really he was always so interested in the other person, genuinely interested. I mean, I think with him, it was natural. I think with me, I had to work at it. I'm glad I had a great model in him to be able to, right? But, um, you know, I always say the single greatest people skill is a highly developed and authentic interest in the other person. And it was always so interesting to me how he would ask questions of pretty much anyone he met and, 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 and got to know about them and encouraged them. He always, as, as I say, I, this isn't, again, this is my words, he, he made people feel genuinely good about themselves. Mm. And, you know, when we can do that, that's when people respond to us in a positive way. I always say, you know, throughout all of my books, whether they're business books, whether sales, marketing, people skills, what have you, I, I have a saying that is all things being equal, people will do business with and refer business to, and we can say, allow themselves to be influenced or led by those people they know, like, and trust. And, you know, there's simply no faster, more powerful, more effective way to elicit those feelings toward you in others than by genuinely and authentically moving from what we call an I focus or me focus to an other focus. In a sense, looking to make your win all about the other person's win. So, you know, that's really where it, where it begins. It's through that focus on, on bringing value to others. And, you know, it, it, it begins with controlling your emotions. You know, the, um, the sages said, who is, a, uh, who is a mighty person? And they said, that person who can control their own emotions and make of an enemy or of a potential enemy a friend. I, really, that's where it begins because you think about it, it's only when we're in control of ourselves and control of our emotions that we're even in a position to take a potentially negative situation or negative person and turn it into a win for everyone involved. Yet how often, and we know this, yet how often do we allow someone based on what they say or what they do or, or a situation, we allow that to push our emotional hot buttons and we make ourselves frustrated or, or helpless feeling or angry and we say or do that very thing that we know is counterproductive to yeah. what we're, you know, and the, 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 the question is, well, why do we, if we know better, why do we do that? And the answer is because we're human beings. And as human beings, we're emotional creatures, right? I mean, we, we'd like to think we're logical, and to a certain extent we are. But we're pretty emotionally driven. We make major decisions based on, on emotion, and we back up those emotional decisions with logic. So we rationalize, which really, I think, means we tell ourselves rational lies, right? And uh, yeah, we do that to justify that. And so we're not saying, by the way, and, and I think this is important, we're not saying to deny your emotions or forego your emotions. Of course not. Emotions are a wonderful part of life. They bring us joy. They make life worthwhile. No, we're saying just make sure that 
you're the master of your emotions as opposed to your emotions being the master of you. Or as one of my great mentors and friends, Dondi Scumachi puts it, by all means, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are driving the car. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, yeah. so controlling your emotions. So understanding the clash of beliefs. Can you expand on that a little bit? I think this is, you know, so important to understand because, you know, what are, what is a belief? Well, a belief is basically a subjective truth. In other words, it's the truth as you understand the truth to be, or as I understand the truth to be, which means it may be the truth or it might just be our truth. Right. And, and we don't even know this now because it's, it's, it's a part of our belief system. Our belief system uh, is kind of a combination of upbringing, environment, schooling, news media, television shows, movies, everything we touch, taste, hear, you know, every experience we have, but it tends to be pretty much etched in stone by the time we're a little more than toddlers, right? So most of us, we grow up um, subject to what I call an unconscious operating system. And we, we think we're making these conscious choices, yet they're really kind of within the premise of our already held beliefs, which we had nothing to do with forming. They were pretty much given to us. But as human beings, we, t and, and by the way, that person with whom we're about to have a interpersonal conversation or conflict, well, they're subject to their own belief systems, their unconscious operating system. But we, we tend as human beings to, to to think that everyone else pretty much sees the world the way the same way we do. How else could it be any different, right? It's all we know. And, and they don't. And so practically every conflict is the result of two people seeing the same basic thing from totally different viewpoints and not even realizing it. By the way, the fact that we think others see the world the same way we do, that's why you often hear people say things like, oh, Everybody likes that, or nobody would want that, or I don't know if you've heard, ever heard someone say, or maybe said it, I know I have far too often, oh, I'd never treat someone like that, or I'd never speak to someone that, well, no, we wouldn't because it's not congruent with our belief system, uh, but it is for them. And so, it, so when we say understand the clash of belief systems, it's, it's not that you have to understand what their belief system is, you can't. They don't even understand what their belief system is. It's probably unconscious. No, you just need to understand that the two of you come from two different belief systems. And when you do that, now you can respectfully work within that situation in order to come to a, you know, come to a proper working uh, conclusion. Uh, you know, what we say is when we say, you know, step into the other person's shoes, right? And that's an old saying. We hear it all the time maybe not so easy when you when you think about the fact that most people have different size feet right uh, so we literally can't step into their shoes we figuratively can't step into their mind or their beliefs so how do we do this well two things one is ask questions mm. right and only by asking questions are we in a position to get to understand that what that person but what we need to do is after we ask the question we need to listen and that's the part of it that can be really, really tough because most people, what they do, and I think we've all probably done this, we, you know, we listen with our ears, but that's just the surface listening. 
That's listening while you're waiting your turn to speak, maybe even forming your own thoughts of what you're going to say to be right and to outright, or it's, uh, you know, letting them get in their two cents so that we can then get in our 10 cents. So that's the surface listening. Instead, what we want to do is listen with our eyes, listen with our posture, even listen with the back of our neck. In other words, really put our whole being into listening to this person. And when you do, two things happen, two wonderful things. One is you do know more. You have stepped into their shoes. You've stepped into their world. You've discovered, you've found out some of the things that are driving them. What is it they believe? What do they need? What do they want? What do they desire? What problems are they having that you can help solve or whatever it happens to be? So you have more knowledge. But secondly, the other person feels heard. They feel listened to. And it's just one of the, the, the human needs we have to, to feel understood by others. And so when you listen like this and this other person feels listened to, it tends to elicit trust, right? It tends to, to help them to be less resistant to you and actually more accepting of your ideas. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I was just having a conversation with someone who has a, a very thick accent. And uh, one of it wasn't so much a complaint as much as it was a comment that uh, oftentimes people don't listen to what they have to say because they have a thick accent. And they act as if this person doesn't know they have a thick accent. And so, <laughs> uh, so uh, in, in speaking with them, they were, they were saying it's very... Um, uh, they feel very good when people ask them to repeat something because it shows that not only did, were they listening, right. but they actually care about they what care. they care. Yes. Right? So, yes. um, yeah. So oftentimes point. we act like people don't know that they have, right. you know, these communication difficulties or that they have some kind of difference. And we try to ignore that difference when in fact it's the acknowledgement of that difference within the context of the conversation that actually propels us to be able to, to, uh, to have good relationships. So, I, I love that. Yes, absolutely. Cool, cool, cool. So I, I, I want to, um, so, so we can all talk about acknowledging the ego. I, I think that idea of saving face is an important thing and allowing people to have kind of this back door so that we don't paint them into a corner. Um, um, you know, setting the proper frame. So knowing that certain kinds of conversations can only happen or should happen within a particular kind of context and, and that kind of stuff uh, is important. But there was one uh, concept, uh, oh, and the last one was uh, talking about tact, uh, communicating yeah. with tact and with empathy, uh, which leads me back to the, can you tell me about the, um, I'm gonna make sure I'm saying this right, the Ronsberger pivot. Oh, yes. Well, this is something that was developed by two people, Ray Ransberger and Marshall Fritz. And it was, it was a way of <clears throat> when you have a political disagreement with someone, finding an area where first you both agree. So you take it from being two real adversaries who absolutely cannot understand why the other person could possibly be thinking the way they do to starting with that place from which you both agree on the outcome and then going from there. So let's take a situation, uh, let's say on, on Facebook, okay? 
probably never seen this one before, but somebody makes a political statement and someone comments, people like you are the worst excuses for human beings. Never heard, never, heard. never seen that. <laughs> now, notice when someone receives a comment like that, okay, they never tend to write back, oh, thank you so much for pointing out the error of my ways. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but now that you put it that way, I renounce everything I've believed for the past 25 years. Of course not. It's only going to make a person feel even more determined to, right? So, so what they came up with, with was a, the Ransberger pivot, and I actually added a little bit to it at the beginning, but it, it would go like this. Let's say again, Somebody posts something political, the person writes back and says, a person by the name of uh, Dave uh, writes back, people like you are the worst people, human beings, you don't care about people, you want to see people out in the street, whatever, okay? So let's say now the, the other person is going to write back and they're going to write to Dave. And here's the part that I kind of put in because this is the kind of the setting it up with tact first. And that is to say, uh, you know, Dave, I must say, um, um, very impressed with the passion you have for this topic. It's obvious you truly care about others. Okay, now here the Ransberger pivot comes where you, you use the words like you, I want to. And here it is. Like you, I want to live in a country where people are able to, and now you'd fill in the blank with what both of you actually want. Because you know what? Most people on the political left and the political right, and I'm not talking about the outliers who are way, I'm talking about most people. They want the same basic thing. We want people to be able to pursue happiness how they see fit as long as they don't harm other people. We want people to be prosperous. We want people to be happy. We want, right? You know, I mean, most people want that. They just have different ways of going about it. So it would be, uh, and then we'll end, uh, I'll put the end of the Ransberger pivot on this. So it would be starting out, you know, Dave, I must say I'm very impressed with your passion for this topic. You, you obviously really care about others. Like you, I want to live in a country where people are able to, and then you fill in the, and then you end with, I think our only disagreement is on what the best way to get there would be. So now you've reframed this from two total adversaries to two people who actually agree on a basic point and they want, and then it's just a matter of, of, you know, the way. So no one's evil. We just have two different ways of getting. Now, let me take this a step further. Someone might say, okay, but, and by the way, I've had these discussions and I've had actually people apologize and say, you're right. I didn't mean to blah, blah, blah. And I've had, I've taught this to others that I have, but often that doesn't happen because you've got someone, the person who would insult someone like that often is sort of so far gone that they really are not looking to. But here's the thing. Remember that in every one of these conversations, and we're saying political, but it could be any, any conversation really. Whether it's uh, in person, at a party, in a group, at the Thanksgiving dinner table, uh, or online, there are typically, aside from the two people engaging in the debate, if you will, there are usually lots of other people who are listening in, not saying anything. And those people are listening for two things. And first of all, most people are not really that far to the left or that far to the right. Most people are actually pretty much in the center, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, but, but can be influenced and they're open, okay? But here's what they're looking for. They're looking for, you know, who has the facts, you know, who has the best argument, but they're even more importantly, they're looking for 
which one of these people presents themselves in a way that is more relatable, that's kinder, that really seems to be the type of person who, if I had a question, I could ask them and they wouldn't bite my head off or not already know it. You know what I'm saying? And so they're much more likely to kind of move to your side of the issue because they, you're a nicer person. You're a kinder person. You're presenting yourself in such a way that you're obviously benevolent and giving other people the benefit of the doubt for, you know, for, for what they think as opposed to they're evil because they don't agree with me. This is, this is so, and, and it's so funny that the, the, the tools that you're giving, again, it goes back to kind of uh, your parents, but also, you know, my parents said very much the same thing and, and demonstrated those things. And, uh, and you also said something in this last piece that I thought was really, really interesting was that people have to want to. Right, so the, the the person that doesn't want to, won't or can't make all of these things, and so uh, so so I think that so a question for each of us I think is do we want to, and why do we, and why don't we necessarily want to turn um, adversaries into allies without coercion. That's a thing. You know, when people say, well, how can you get people to, you know, to start applying these? Well, the first thing is they, they need to um, first believe that maybe there's a better way of doing things than what they've been doing, right? Because if, you know, if, you, if, if someone is a real just kind of nasty and argumentative and, you know, my mind's made up, don't confuse me with the facts type of person, if that's just how they are, well, you know, how's that? It's the old Dr. Phil question, right? How's that working for them? And, you know, but if they think it's working for them, fine, why would they change? We don't change when we don't feel we have any, you know, any reason to. So it's really first someone saying, hey, you know, the way I'm doing it, I don't have the kind of influence that I'd really like. I don't have the type of maybe abilities to persuade people to my point of view. I find myself just in arguments a lot that really don't feel good. They're not making friends of people. They're just driving people away from me. Maybe there's a better way to do it, you know, and then they're open. Then they're ready for, for ways to, you know, to uh, turn that around and, and turn that into a, a positive. Cool, cool, cool. No, so, um, you know what, I, I'm really going to encourage people to, uh, to, to buy the book. Uh, I was going to ask you a bunch of other questions, but I think that I, I don't want you to have to reiterate the book. <laughs> in our, you, uh, whatever you want. That, that's yeah. fine. I'm, just, I'm enjoying this immensely. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, so, so, there, so I have about four other concepts that I wanted you to kind of walk us through. And okay. because uh, one that I thought to be, I thought was really interesting was this idea of be, be a judge and not a lawyer. Right. So what's, what's the, you know, judge, not yes. You know, you know. So what's the difference between those two concepts? Yeah, this was, was actually uh, from the Talmud where they're talking about the difference in, in um, being involved in a, a discussion, or you could say a debate and they say, be a, a judge, not a lawyer. And that is a, a lawyer is there for the purpose of arguing a certain point for their side. That is what they're paid to do. That's their responsibility, you know, within the law, of course, and within ethically, of course, but their job is to make the case for their client. Whereas the judge is there to look at things objectively, weigh things, right? And to be able to then come to a 
decision. Mm. And unless we're actually a lawyer arguing a case, we should be a judge because only then are we able to see the situation as opposed to just hearing one side of the issue. When it comes to decision making, we, we need to have the facts in front of us. We need to have both sides of the issue, but not only both sides, but all sides, because it's not usually, uh, you know, sometimes they say, well, there are three sides to every argument, you know, uh, one side, this side, and somewhere in the middle. But somewhere it's not even, sometimes it's not even in the middle. Sometimes it's way outside those points. So we need to list it as objectively as we can. That's what a judge does as opposed to a, a, a lawyer. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, let's see. Oh, you, you talk about not, non-serving beliefs, right? So how, how can a, a belief be non-serving? Or what's a, yeah. a way to think about that? Yeah. You know, as w when we talk about beliefs, again, it's understanding that most of these were given to us. We did not consciously accept these beliefs as truths. Uh, we just accepted them as truths because we were too young to know any different, right? So again, whether it's environment, parents, teachers, the kid, you know, at a, at a very young age. And so let's say someone grows up, um, uh, someone, someone grows up hearing that, uh, Oh, people with money are nasty people. They got there by taking advantage of others or by doing it on the backs of others or by being crooked, right? And someone grows up with that. That's a non-serving belief because really when you think about it, especially the more free market a community is, uh, a society is, when I say free market, I simply mean no one's forced to do business with anyone else. Right. The only way someone will do business with someone is, is when, that, when they feel it will um, they'll be better off by doing so, which means the entrepreneur, the salesperson, the business person that needs to provide, they need to focus on providing exceptional value to others. And what we would even say is money is simply an echo of value. It's the thunder to values lightning, which really means that the value must be the focus. The value comes first. The money you receive is a very natural result of the value you provided. However, what if someone grows up with a belief that money is bad, rich people are bad, they, you know, they get, wow, you can be providing exceptional value to many, many people. But when it comes time to be able to receive that, that money, if unconsciously your belief system says money is bad, people with money are bad, you know, wealthy people are bad, I don't want to be bad, so... What do we do? We sabotage. Yeah. Same with relationships. You know, you look at relationships where someone grows up as the product of a, a very um, uh, turbulent, you know, hmm? very turbulent, turbulent relationship, marriage, yeah. where to them, parents argue with each other. They're more enemies than they are friends. They're more right. Well, this person grows up. It's not that they consciously seek out uh, a partner like that. But in their way of seeing the world and their belief system, their subjective truth, that's what a relationship is. And that's why, you know, it, they tend to, if they're having a good relationship, they sabotage that and they find someone who doesn't. Again, those are just beliefs that don't serve us. And so what I talk about is we need to move from that unconscious belief system, uh, that unconscious operating system, right, that we talked about earlier, and go into consciousness live in consciousness, check our premises, always ask ourselves, why do I feel this way? Why do I believe this? Who did I learn it from? How do they know this? Is this definitely fact? 
who told them it was right. And so the more we can drill down and really live in, in a, a mode of conscious awareness, that's the degree we can rid ourselves of those non-serving beliefs and take on beliefs that serve us and of course serve the world around us. Yeah, it, it tucked in that, that, that concept as you were talking about, I was thinking is also having some goals for myself, right? So um, if I have goals and those beliefs aren't serving those goals, then in fact, those would be non-serving. Oh, but gotcha. again, to your previous point, if they are serving me, then I'm not going to change and I won't see a need for change because right. they're serving me, right? So, yeah. um, no, and sometimes we think they're serving when they're not because our view of the world says this is just the way it is. You know? <laughs> so, I, again, so that's why, again, we have to go and we all do this. I mean, I, I do this and I, it's, it's something we constantly have to work on. It's a work in progress. Uh, you know, it, but, but that's life and that is human nature. Yeah, yeah, no, it, I feel like we are, uh, we're brothers <laughs> in, in terms of how we, how we see the world because yeah. when we talk about diversity and inclusion, all the things, all the tools that you're giving us are the things we want people to be mindful of, right? Oh, in the you. hiring process, in the advancement of, of people in their workplaces, uh, as a manager, a supervisor, to be really critical, am I operating with these belief systems Mm -hmm. that may not necessarily be serving because the world is changing. Con the right. context is changing. Yeah. So mm -hmm. as a, an effective leader, I have to adapt to those contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, j just a couple of other things that I wanted to, uh, to, to hit on. One was uh, speak good and how to influence or build a team. Can, can you speak to, to this idea of speaking good? Well, you know, it's, it's funny, and we all know the power of the tongue, right? Can, it can build or it can destroy. Uh, gossip is which, you know, to me, I define gossip as the um, unnecessary sharing of any harmful or hurtful information, okay? Uh, so with that definition, there can be no good gossip, right? So well, what about good gossip? Well, if it's, it's the unnecessary sharing of harmful or hurtful information, uh, there can't be good gossip. There can be information exchanges. There can be good news. But no, gossip by its very nature is a negative, okay, if, if you go with that, that definition. Now, the unnecessary sharing. Now, is it ever necessary to share something that's harmful or hurtful? Well, there's times if, if someone's stealing from the company, yeah, you've got to be able to let the appropriate person know. Um, even then, you need to do it in a way that you're not saying anything more than you have to. You're not saying, oh, and by the way, that person has bad breath. Uh, it would just be, you know, but I have reason to believe that this X and that, you know, and, and do. But, uh, but when we reverse that, and we always look for ways to speak good of people. And again, that's something I learned from my dad, and I'm forever grateful that he always found something good to say about someone. And what he did, uh, and I wrote an article about this once that's been all over uh, the world and and just because people have picked up on it and, and shared it and it's how he you know w when someone could try to speak ill of someone he he wouldn't acknowledge that but instead he would find what the good was in that other person and get the other person to agree with that and and see the good and what my dad would do is he would only spread things to others when good was spoken about them. And so he always created goodwill among people. 
And that's something I've just always tried to do. And I don't think I've ever done it as, as, as wonderfully as my dad has, but it's something I've always tried to do. And that when I hear someone good saying something about someone, so, so when I hear someone saying something good about someone else, I make sure that other person knows that. And these two people end up being even better, closer friends maybe, or, you know, what have you. But so if we're going to, if we're going to repeat anything, repeat the good. Now, and again, I'm not being Pollyanna. There's times and we, hey, there's times we have to, uh, critique someone or we have to constructively criticize. I mean, we're talking about the real world, but that's where tact comes in. And my, my dad, and again, I, I don't mean to be bragging about my dad. And I know you have great <laughs> parents as well. And so it's, it's, you know, um, but my dad has always defined tact as the language of strength. And I've always enjoyed that because to me, it takes strength to not just you know, fire back at someone who says something that you don't agree with or to send that email reply when so, or to, you know, uh, speak to someone in a way that, that you're going to regret later on because it wasn't the best choice of words. I think tact is really being able to communicate information to someone that they may not ordinarily enjoy hearing or welcome, but doing it in such a way that not only are they not defensive toward you or resistant to your idea, but they're open to you and they're more accepting of your idea because of the way it was expressed to them. Hmm. So I know, so you've mentioned your dad a couple of times and this actually isn't in my notes, but just in, in talking with you, where do you think, where did your dad get this level of self-actualization, this level of interpersonal, the importance of interpersonal relationships? What, what do you think, what, what, were there events in his life that kind of thrust him to have these realizations? Or it, it, was this kind of an, uh, an accumulation over, over a lifetime of experiences that he was able to say this? So, so I guess my core question is, what, was there a single event or was, was, was this over a lifetime that he was able to kind of come to these things that you gleaned from? I think in my dad's case, it really was a gift. Mm. It really was. Uh, because typically, this kind of thing that I talk about, you know, people skills, if you will, which is a very important part of success, um, is typically learned, okay? It, and most people don't have that natural kind, but he just had a gift of, of this. He grew up very, very poor, you know, was Americana, uh, the the immigrant slums, the the in the middle of the depression, and the uh, you know growing up in the middle of depression, leaving home to fight in World War II, and you know that whole greatest generation you know type of thing. But really, in the the, the so he had nothing, you know, when when, um, uh, but he just kind of made his way, and and uh, you know, with my mom, uh, the, the two of them, you know, built a nice business, and and. Uh, I don't know, with, with him, I really think it was just a gift. And he was very self-educated. Growing up, he was always reading, always reading, all the time. And, um, but yeah, I think he just just had a gift that most people don't have. Again, let's say it wasn't a gift for me. I, I had to learn it, but I was very lucky that I got to you know, uh, observe on a constant basis. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I want to thank you so for being so vulnerable with us. I want to thank you for sharing a lot of your dad's knowledge through through the writing of this book. And again, I'm going to encourage people to uh, to go after this. They're really great tools that you you've put in here. 
And, um, and uh, I hope at some point we, uh, particularly if you come to the cities and love to at least grab coffee, uh, buy you dinner or, or something, uh, because I think we, we're kin, kinsmen in this, in this work that Absolutely. we need to build more relationships and that uh, the only enemies that we have are the, are the ones we haven't met yet, right? So, uh, yeah. yeah, and you know, and we were both lucky to have parents that set great examples. Yep. And I think that it really is so important uh, because we know that, you know, the, the, the children, they look at what you're doing, right? <laughs> and so I, I think that's a, you know, just, it, it's so very important. And uh, yeah, and I'm going to be up there in January when, when it's very cold. So as long as the coffee is hot, wow, that, <laughs> yeah, because I know the conversation will be great. Well, great, 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 great. Well, and I do want to, I, I will say this though, that my, my parents uh, did something that I, I think many parents sometimes are afraid to do. And uh, they knew that they're, they could only take me so far that with the, the, the gifts and talents that they had, they could only lead me so far. And so they placed me in the hands of people who could take me further than how they, than the distance they could run, so to speak. And so uh, I think that that's, that's and that says a lot about them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so hopefully as people are listening to this podcast or watching this video that they, they recognize that you don't have to, you know, you, you may not be as fortunate as we have been in terms of having um, parents who could impart those things. Or, uh, however, um, the things you were taught are not your fault, but they are your responsibility. And so how do you take responsibility for uh. your own life? Because it is yours. This is Andre Cohen. I want to say thank you so much to Bob for joining us today. This has been an episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion. Hope you've enjoyed this conversation that we had with Bob Berg, the author of Adversaries to Allies. And so with that, we're out of here. Have a great day. See you next time.